Hello and welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark and I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I really love putting these together. Um, Writing helps me find out what I think, helps me find out what I feel. And writing is a practice that keeps me engaged with Jesus, keeps me listening. Um, but I also really like to do things in seasons and uh, because I've got other things I really want to work on, specifically songwriting for a new project. So this episode will be the season finale of 1000 Words. And then, Lord willing, I'll be back. I'll start back uh, January of 2021 with season three, because uh, I don't want to abandon this. I really like doing this. Uh, meanwhile, in the meantime, here are some things I'm asking you to do so that we can stay in touch. Uh, number one is sign up for my mailing list on my website. My website is matthewclark.net. Number two is follow me on Instagram at matthewclarknet. Number three is find me on Spotify. Uh, All my music is on Spotify. Uh, Number four is subscribe to my YouTube channel. I've got some videos on there, and I'll probably be adding more as I'm working more on music. So you can follow that process. Uh, So those four things, mailing list, Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube, uh, that's kind of where I'll be in the off-season. And I'm really excited about the off-season because I'm kind of... I don't know, maybe I don't sound excited, but I am excited. I'm kind of chomping at the bits uh, to work on new music. Uh, It's been five years since I released my last album uh, called Beautiful Secret Life, and songs and song ideas are kind of piling up. Uh, I have a, you know, more or less epic idea uh, for this next project, and so I'm about to dig deep into working on it. And I want you to be a part of that. So again, mailing list, Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, So all that said, um, this week, I've been thinking about Amy Lee's episode last week and praying that the Lord would weave together things in me that have been unraveled or uh, maybe pull apart the poor stitching where fear and self-preservation You know, they've done the best they know how, but they've failed to patch things up. Um, Conversations with friends like Amy remind me that this life, broken as it is, uh, continually signals toward Jesus, signing the Lord's signature. Um, This has been called a disenchanted age, and we have normalized a view of life in the world, which renders that signature of Jesus unreadable, until it seems that there is no author at all for us to belong to in love, and no story to lend meaning to our lives. But that's not true. Uh, so here is the last episode that I kind of want to send you off with uh, till I see you again in season three, an essay called The Radiant.
Gandalf is confronting the traitor Saruman, whose slick justifications of his treachery hinge on what would appear to be innovations. Saruman split the wholeness of the white light into many colors. White, Saruman sneered. It serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed. The white page can be overwritten. And the white light can be broken. In which case it is no longer white, said Gandalf. And he that breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom. In season one of this podcast on episode nine, I've talked about the etymology of the word diabolical and its surprising opposite, symbolical. Just quickly, diabolical means divisive, and symbolize means to join. For instance, the objectification of a human being, where we divide the dignity of someone's personhood from their body, say in slavery or pornography, or even perhaps rudeness interrupting and talking too much. This objectification reduces a person to a useful implement, rather than acknowledging them as a dignified, whole person. On the other hand, Chesterton says, thinking is making connections. Now, he doesn't mean anything fanciful or inventive as if thinking were fabricating connections. Chesterton is talking about something more like discovering or recognizing indwelling interrelatedness and resonances of meaning in the world. There really is something going on here, and when we stop to carefully consider, to think, we may begin to pick up on patterns, to hear subtle symphonies always sounding from the depths of God's creation. Thinking, for Chesterton, is a species of listening But going back to the two words diabolical and symbolical, you could say Chesterton is identifying thinking as a symbolic practice. It is a rejoining of what man has put asunder. In our skeptical age, one lesson of skepticism worth learning is that it is very healthy to be skeptical of our skepticism. Doubt surely comes and is itself worth doubting. As Charles Taylor points out, we've given up the ghost by reducing all of reality to mere material. Love is merely the clashing of chemicals. Morality merely the sum of legalistic constructions. Mind is only matter, and beauty and bodies only skin deep. Whatever breath they once drew no longer has any connection to the wind or spirit mentioned by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 4. The postmodern human has been almost entirely uninspired, dispirited, disenchanted, hollowed out. The ghost is gone, and only a shell remains. But again, Taylor points out that we remain a haunted people. Maybe, he says, because there really is a ghost, and a holy one at that. That haunting sense of a presence beyond the merely material calling to us to doubt our doubt relates back to what Gandalf says to Saruman. But how? Saruman has 
an instrumental view of the world. It's just matter to be used for whatever ends prove most expedient. Gandalf knows better. The world is bestowed as a gift. And as with any gift, the intentions of the giver saturate its existence with the presence of that giver's heart. In this way, all things gather in themselves a radiance from the one who is the light of light. Saruman's wisdom has been diminished by his choice to break the light. He wants not to receptively participate in the radiance, but to possess it. For those who have eyes to see, God's invested radiance in the things he has made is there for the beholding. That's why this practice of beholding, commanded by John the Baptist, is crucial for us. Since when we behold, we look not just at, but into a thing. If we look only at Jesus, we may see a potentially historical figure who, if not a mere fabrication of human embellishment, was at least a notable moral teacher. But to follow through with the baptizer's request is to truly perceive the radiant reality of the Word before all worlds manifesting in Jesus. To behold the Lamb of God, or to say with the soldier at the cross, surely this is the Son of God. And isn't this a more beautiful way than Saruman's? Saruman's way is pragmatic, but it is not beautiful, because it breaks things asunder. Tolkien may be encouraging us to consider carefully what things are, not just what we can do with them. It follows that Saruman is ousted from the council of the wise, and in the end his only companion, Wormtongue, murders him. On the other hand, Gandalf shepherds a fellowship, and in the end presides over a wedding. Gandalf the White is always at work to heal splinterings in the world. That is the way of wisdom, and it comes from an attentiveness, a beholding of things which allows him to perceive the radiance in them. For us, that radiance draws our gaze through created things all the way back to creation's origin in Christ, the Father, and our haunting Holy Ghost. Some have taken Gandalf's comment to Saruman as an anti-science statement. I don't know that it's anti-science, but it is against the absolutizing of science as a primary index of reality. Science is helpful and good, but its nature is to analyze, that is, to break a thing into parts. But a case in point of the haunting mentioned earlier shows up in our phrase, a thing is more than the sum of its parts. For instance, the moment you dissect a frog to get at its parts, you're dealing with something less than a frog. 
A frog is at its froggiest when it is hopping and croaking happily in a pond. That gets us closer to what a frog is. Science has much to offer with regard to how a frog's parts function, but it has almost, maybe absolutely, nothing to say about what a frog really is. Science doesn't have the means at this point to behold any reality beyond the material. When a scientist does comment on the ontological or significant, he or she does so as a human, not primarily as a scientist. She must borrow from another realm of perception to symbolize upon the diabolized frog some transcendent meaning. All that to say, we are a people with an overactive analytical habit. Interestingly, I'm reading now a book about recovering from trauma called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and it's a very helpful science book. But what's fascinating is that the result of his analysis is that we need to stop dividing people into brain, mind, and body. The diabolical reality of trauma is that it hacks us into pieces. If we hope for healing, we must recover the fact that we are a complex whole. We need a second, safe, womb-like context in which our unravelings can be re-knit. The frog must be put back together again. We've summed up the parts, everything's materially there, but we sense this, quote, something more remains dissociated. Maybe the frog, once kissed by the beholding gaze, could, if not become a prince itself, at least reveal the sign of the Prince of Peace. Our fine froggy fellow may be one lumpy green loop in the long cursive signature of God himself. And the peace our prince brings is not an abstracted acceptance of the way things are, but rather it's shalom, the life-giving cohesion of all things, as all things are lovingly, rightly wedded in Christ. That wedding is the climax of redemptive history. The at-one-ment Christ offers is not the Buddhist eradication of desire and distinction, as individuality dissolves like a drop in the ocean of the all. The oneness Jesus promises is shalom, where everything becomes fully itself and whole, finding its rich and right correspondence to everything else, its place, its meaning. That's what happens when relationships are healed. You've seen this before. When people live in brokenness, misunderstanding reigns, and each of us is confused and hurt by the other. Compassion brings a blurred person into focus. Forgiveness allows the muddy water to settle. And the reconciliation Jesus accomplished on the cross clarifies the distinctive radiance of individuals shadowed by sin. It's an apocalypse 
like every sunrise is an apocalypse. That arrival ignites the earth, waking it to the incandescence of recognition. The lamp slips out from underneath the bushel, and we laugh with the joy of a child playing peekaboo. This whole world is a complexity of interwoven light and logos, shining like shook foil, where each thing deals out that being indoors each one dwells, where every created thing acts in God's eye what in God's eye it is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. And one day, the analogy will be fulfilled by its reality. The sun will bow to the sun and call it a day. When he appears, we too will finally and truly appear. We will see his face. He is true. We are like a dream, a story half remembered in a restless sleep. But that day, he will behold us and seeing in us the truth he spoke into being, we will each be a word, sweet as honey on his lips, a word that is finally coming true. Well, to close out this season, I'd like to pray over us Paul's words from Ephesians 1. Uh, he prays for wisdom, and I think of Gandalf. He prays for revelation, and I think of the radiance we talked about. He prays like Amy Lee wrote, uh, for hearts that see the present reality soaked with the light of God's presence and promises. And he reminds us who Jesus really is as God over all. Um, so here's this prayer for us. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Okay. Well, friends, I do want to say thank you so much for listening. Um, thanks for letting me do this, helping me do this. Remember to go sign up on my mailing list. Find me on Instagram, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, and have a great summer and fall. And uh, feel free to get in touch. And I will see you in January right here.
for season three.